All right, you're being recorded. You're being recorded. You got any razors with you? I am planning to come over and eat tonight since you're not having anything right now. <laughs> yeah. we, got, we got lots to share. <laughs> you got a menu? <laughs> Let's pray for a second. Lord, I just pray that your word would go forth and accomplish your purposes. There's so much there, Lord, and so much that um, evades us. And so much that doesn't stay where it needs to stay deep in our heart. And I just pray that you would uh, rectify that this morning and cause us to understand things that we don't understand normally. That we would see um, the light shine on your word and that we would grow in it. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Mm-hmm. So this thing... Uh, you mentioned God being in control. This is a different take on control. Said a representative of the gas company phoned the owner of an expensive new home to make an appointment for the serviceman to come in and light the pilot lights and adjust the furnace. The owner said that was okay, but he wanted to make sure that he was there because if he wasn't, the serviceman would never get the furnace going. The caller from the gas company insisted that his people were well-trained and would have no trouble. You don't understand, the owner said. When your man tries to adjust the furnace, he'll go out of his mind. The thermostat in the entry hall is a dummy. It's there for my wife to play with. (laughs) Only I know where the true one is hidden. (laughs) (laughs) Who does that remind you of? (laughs) We all have people that it reminds us of. A, a, a real one or a dumb one? I can control it from my phone. <laughs> there have been a lot of times in my life I felt like somebody had hidden a thermostat from me. <laughs> that no matter how much I played with it or I fiddled with it, nothing seemed to change. And I think that's the way we feel sometimes. We're going to be basically in Genesis 15. And it's um it's one of these chapters that is really remarkable if you stop and look at it closely. And once again I started in an entirely different direction which is is my want. 
I was in the book of Acts and how I ended up in Genesis 15 is a is a mystery even to me. But I'd, I'd like to look first of all sort of a preamble. How, how does all of this fit together? And if you read the Bible for the first time or for many times, it might help if what we started to read, first of all, is Revelation chapters 20 through 22. And just seeing the conclusion sometimes helps you put things in perspective and can clarify the things that you're reading when you go back to the beginning. (coughs) If you do start in Genesis, you see that right away it tells us that God intends to establish his kingdom on earth. He's going to establish it with man reigning in righteousness in submission to him. He creates Adam and Eve and um, to live and to work and to guard the Garden of Eden. And then here comes Satan. And he successfully tempts them both. And then death is introduced into the whole scenario. Creation is cursed. Man is denied access to the tree of life. And God declares war on the serpent. If you look in Revelation in those two chapters I mentioned, we see the final resolution. The devil finally defeated. Man is restored to the intended role he has as a priest before God. And you see the garden is restored again with man. The curse is lifted and God is fully established and man again has access to the tree of life. And all this is possible because of the work of the Lamb of God, because of Jesus. And we should look at scripture, I think, and, and look at these themes all the way through it. You look at the conflict between the people of the serpent and the people of God, because it's there all the way through scripture. We look at see how God, how he likes, how he takes his kingdom and his work of redemption, and he weaves it through the whole story. And how he ties everything together through Jesus. In the earlier parts of Genesis, before we get to chapter 15, first of all, you read about when you get to Noah, you read about how corrupt everything has gotten. That God looks at it and all he sees is wickedness and no end to it. It's so bad that God says, it repents me that I've even made man. And so he sends a flood and he wipes out everybody except Noah and his family. And then after the flood, God makes a covenant with Noah never to end the world with a flood again. And he sends his rainbow as a covenant pledge. Noah lives another 350 years after the flood and he dies when he's 950 years old. 
So I've got a long way to go. <laughs> so I'm not worried about the virus. I mean, good, that's pretty young, you know. <laughs> Noah's sons, three of them, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and their families spread out and cover the earth and repopulate it just as God had commanded. But it wasn't long before people forgot about the flood, which is normal. We always forget. So you go a couple hundred years and the flood is a distant memory. In fact, everybody was killed in the flood. So all you've got are the stories. And I imagine people then thought maybe it was a fairy tale too. Just like they think some stories in the Bible are fairy tales now. So they gather together, the people that are many, many people now after the Shem and Ham and Japheth have, and their families have repopulated the earth. They gather together in the land called Shinar, and they decide to build a tower to reach to the heaven because they want to be like God. And God says, that's not going to happen. You're disobedient. He confounds the language. Nobody understands each other. They all scatter. Around 350 or 60 years after the flood, just a few years before Noah died, Abraham was born to his father Terah. And Terah is a descendant of Noah's son, Shem. So when he's 75 years old, God calls Abraham to leave his home and go to a place that God's going to show him. You've got a pagan living in a pagan land, hearing God, believing God, leaving everything, and going to an unknown land. And God promises him that he's going to make him and his descendants into a great nation, and that his people would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. This is in Genesis 12. And then you see the story continue with the story with Abraham and his nephew Lot. And they're very wealthy. And they've got so many flocks and herds that they there's not enough land for both of them. So they decide to separate to provide enough for their flocks and their herds. And Lot looks and sees a place that looks really, really great. It's lush. And so he goes to live in the valley and Sodom and Gomorrah and some very wicked cities are there too. The next thing you see is a battle of kings. You've got four kings against five kings and it's kings in the Bible are kings of cities. It's like a king of Raleigh or a king of Durham or a king of New York City or something like that. So it's not a king like we think of of a huge country. But anyway, you've got four kings fighting five kings. The four kings win. They sack the cities, one of which is Sodom, where Lot's living. They lead Lot off and the rest of the captives with all their the things that they have taken, the booty, you would call it. And Abraham, who is a rich man, takes his servants and he goes after them. He rescues Lot, sets him free. And then we see Melchizedek, this strange, mysterious figure 
that Abraham pays a tithe to, a tenth. And Melchizedek blesses Abraham. That's sort of the background as we get into chapter 15. If you understand what these chapters are saying, especially 14, you can understand the first six verses a little better, especially the first verse. But in the 15th chapter, the first six verses read, After these things, after what things? After the battle, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I'm a shield for you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given me no offspring, you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. And born in my house means a member of my household. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man was not, will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars. If you're able to count them, And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him for righteousness. Abraham's a very wealthy man, but he's living in a a land that's foreign to him, a land that God had chosen. He's living in the land of Canaan. Now, this is the same land. This is the future promised land. And he's living there. And even though he's wealthy, he just got through fighting these kings. He's got a lot of enemies. He's the only one that believes in the Lord. Everybody else is an idol worshiper. This is why he's afraid. And this is why God says, Abraham, don't be afraid. Because he's got reason to be afraid in the natural. Sound familiar? You've got reason to be afraid in the natural? Don't fear, Abraham. I am a shield for you. It's rather difficult to have descendants as plentiful as the stars when you don't have a son. Mm-hmm. That's kind of you know difficult to, to grasp, and it might be a little hard for anybody to understand. It had been years since God first made the promise to Abraham. It's back in uh, chapter 12, where he said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And still Sarah doesn't have any children. So Abraham assumes that his servant, Eleazar, is going to be his heir. And this was a common practice back then, to take a servant 
And this servant is going to be the head of your household. He's the one that's going to take care of your burial when you die. And he's the one that's going to inherit your possessions. So this is Abraham's thinking. But God says, that's not going to happen. It's not going to be Eliezer. He says, you're going to have a son. And then he takes him outside and shows him the stars. And he says, your descendants are going to be like the stars. They're going to be countless. And if you ever forget the promise, go outside and look at the stars. And verse 6 is one of the most theologically, what would you say, theologically bountiful, plentiful. It's... um. It's, anyway, it's one of the most important theological comments you're going to find in the Bible. And verse 6 again says, And he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Abraham believes, and God counts it as righteousness to him. When we believe, what happens? God counts us as righteous. It means you're mine. And that's what it means here. And this is what it means all the way through the Old Testament. That's why you can people look back to Abraham, because God counts him as righteous. He counts him as the father of the faithful again and again and again. It explains probably better than any other single verse in the Old Testament how the unrighteous can stand before a holy God, because it's all of God. <clears throat> What did Abraham do? He trusted God. He believed God. Works, he did it. So he trusts the word of God. Everything in the natural said it couldn't happen. Abraham's old, and he's going to get older before the promise comes. He's going to be 90. He's going to be 100 years old. Sarah's going to be 90. So we still got another 15, 20, 25 years to go from this particular time before the promise of God. And it's already been a period of time since the first promise was given. So you talk about being faithful. You talk about waiting. You talk about not getting impatient because God hasn't answered your prayer yet. Mm. Try to be Abraham and see what you think. But Abraham believes God. And God counts it as righteousness. He credits righteousness to Abraham because he trusts God. Because he puts his faith in him. And it's through Abraham's descendants, the nation of Israel, that God sends his son. The Savior, who's going to bring righteousness to a world full of unrighteous people. God credits to us the righteousness of Jesus. And after Abraham had righteousness credited to him, he went out and everything in his life was perfect after that. (laughs) Not happened, does it? He still had troubles. He still had many difficulties to go through. He was righteous before God. The troubles did not end. Because God doesn't do it that way. 
the world was still a dangerous place. This is not a everybody lived happily ever after. There are trials to go through. There are crucibles that are going to be in our life. Find me one person in Scripture that didn't have trouble. I don't know of any. Everybody goes through hard times. Everybody faces difficult times where I'm sure they're going like David did multiple times. Oh, Lord, are you going to hear me? Don't you hear me? Why am, why is I, why am I going through this? It happens again and again. Verses 7 through 18. <clears throat> I stumble sometime on reading because this left eye is not functioning quite the way it's supposed to. So sometimes it sort of blots it out and I have to do this. So bear with me. <clears throat> Verse 7 says, And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you the land to possess it. And he said, O oh Lord, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed four hundred years. And I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. There in the fourth generation on, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. It came about when the sun had set, that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Abraham, the scripture says, believed God. And yet what do you see here? He says, how may I know that I will possess it? Possess what? The land that you promised me. How am I going to know it? If you remember back in the New Testament, the Lord appears as an angel to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. And he says, you're going to have a son. And Zechariah says, no way. And the angel strikes him deaf. Excuse me, mute. He cannot speak until his son is born. But you don't see that happening here. What's the difference? Because the words are almost identical with what Zechariah said and what Abraham says. 
And they're obviously different because God doesn't do this to Abraham. Abraham's asking for a sign that would not only confirm the promise, but would give him further understanding of the promise. He trusts God. He believes God. But God, I don't understand this. And God knows his heart. He knows he's not doubting God. So there's a great difference, even though the wording looks the same sometimes. Because God, as he says, looks at the heart. He knows those that believe and those that don't trust his word. And now what you see is God answering that question by making a covenant with Abraham. And this is a uh, traditional at the time Near Eastern method of confirming with an oath that your word is good. And God says, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and young pigeons. And if you notice, these animals are clean. They're not unclean animals. He doesn't say, bring me a camel, bring me a, a something else with cloven hooves or something like that. These are clean animals that are acceptable for sacrifice. So they bring them and they cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. So here's the picture. You've got these animals that have been cut in two, half here, half here. And it was called cutting the covenant. And a covenant covenant is a solemn agreement between two parties. You, one party promises this, the other prom, uh, promises this. And with a covenant, disobeying the covenant, breaking the covenant, is a death penalty. And here you don't see Abraham and God walking through the covenant. You see God walking through the covenant. And God is basically saying, if I don't keep my word, May I die? Now, God can't die. But that's how serious this is. God says, my word is not, if I don't keep my word, then then it's as if you, you would kill me, you, I would die. It would never happen. Abraham doesn't go through it. God knows he can't keep his word. God makes a unilateral statement that I don't care whether you keep it, not that I don't care. But even if you don't keep your word, I'm going to keep mine. I'm going to give you this land. It's going to happen. Now, it might be 400 years before you get it, but it's going to happen. And then in verse 11, it says, The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, And Abram drove them away. Mostly in scripture, birds represent evil. Okay? Um, Remember the parable of the sower? The sower sows seeds, the birds come and take it away. Well, you see it a lot. Now we're not talking about sparrows and turtle doves. We're talking about birds of prey. And they're evil. 
And here, Abraham stays awake and he chases the vultures away that are there to eat the carcasses which are symbols of the covenant. It's a symbol of Satan always trying to distract, always trying to cause the covenant to be broken. And Abraham stays awake and he chases them away. So Abraham is saving the covenant because he's alert. He's waiting for God to walk through. God says, I'm coming. And so Abraham is vigilant. And it's a call to us not to be sleepy, not to turn away, to be vigilant and to wait on God. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great distress fell upon him. Why in the world did terror and great distress fall on Abraham? Because with the coming promise comes great tribulation. Your people are going to be in slavery for 400 years. Okay, These descendants of yours that are going to spread out throughout the whole world, be like stars of the sky, are going to go through great tribulation. They're going to be a slave in another country that's not their own. And so Abraham is in great distress when he's sleeping. And then God says, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that's not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. You know, what's interesting here is that if you look in the book of Jeremiah, in the 34th chapter, here's the background. The Babylonians are surrounding Jerusalem. And the king obviously is in great distress. You know, here's the the greatest army in the world around there. And so what they decide to do, you're not allowed to hold an Israelite as a slave, a bond servant, if you will, but six, but six years. You have to let him go in that six year. Israel had completely disregarded this command from the Old Testament out of Deuteronomy. In other words, they were making their own citizens slaves, and they were slaves forever. They were not being let go. But what the the law says is that you had to let them go, and if they wanted to stay, they could stay. It's not really a slave like we think of one, but it's an indentured servant. But you've got to set him free if he wants to go free. And they wouldn't do that. They were in perpetuity. They were there forever. And all of a sudden, the king goes, you know, I've got to make some kind of a token to God to show him that we are really going to obey him. So he sends out a a command for all these indentured servants that are at this point where they need to be set free and should have been set free, that they're now free. 
Well, what happens is that at the same time, Egypt, Pharaoh takes his army and he comes against the Babylonians. And the Babylonians, seeing that Egypt has come and take their army and they go to meet the Egyptians. And the king goes, wow, they're not here anymore. We're okay. And so he backs up on his promise. And the ones that he's just set free, he takes them right back into servitude again. And God says, I see your heart. I know what's going on. And in Jeremiah 34, it says in 17, it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me in proclaiming release each man to his brother and each man to his neighbor. Behold, I am proclaiming a release to you, declares the Lord. Okay, you wouldn't release your neighbor. You wouldn't release your bondservant. Here's a release that I'm going to give in you. I'm giving you a release to the sword and pestilence and to famine. And I will make you a terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. I will give the men you have transgressed my covenant. All right, my covenant who have not fulfilled the words of the covenant which they made before me when they cut the calf in two and passed between the parts. The same covenant. They made a covenant with God and they walked between the, the cut parts of the animals. The officials of Judah and the officials of Jerusalem, the court officers and the priests and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. Symbolically, the leaders had walked walked between the parts of the animal. I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life. And their dead bodies will be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. That's how serious it is. They made a covenant with God the same way that you see in Genesis 15. They broke the covenant, and God doesn't say, no big deal. He says, your life is forfeit. And they go into slavery. Babylon captures Jerusalem. They go into slavery for 70 years after a great slaughter of people. So this is what you got. And then he says about the people that are going to go into slavery coming up into Egypt. He says, but I will judge the nation whom they will serve. God always does this. He calls a nation to be a judge against his people because of their transgressions over and over and their sin. But he calls that nation to be a just nation against his people. And when they're not, when they're even more evil than they were supposed to be, God judges them. He did it to Assyria. He did it to Babylon. He does it to Egypt. For I will judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterwards they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried in a good old age. Here's wealthy Abram in a land that God has called him to go to. 
and he never owned so much as a half acre in the place. They're going to inherit the whole land, and all Abraham ever owns in the land of Canaan is a burial spot. But he trusts God. He believes him. Now God doesn't call us to believe for a short period of time. He calls us to believe, period. He said it. It's carved in eternity. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here. And and here a generation is not like 40 years in the New Testament. They're talking about a generation that means basically 100 years. So in the fourth, 400 years later, they're going to come back here. Why not now? Because God's got a plan. He's always got a plan. And it always started at the beginning. He didn't change it halfway through or two-thirds of the way through. And the plan is this is what's going to happen in the Garden of Eden. And this is what's going to happen here. He had given the land to the Canaanites. But it was a conditional thing. Just like he gave the land to Israel and it was a conditional thing. And when Israel got to the point that they broke the the, the, the way God had said you're to live in the land, when it got to the crush, crushing point, God sends them into captivity for 70 years to teach them to obey God. Well, the Canaanites, he gave a little longer to. They had been there, and the Amorites were the ones that um, were sort of the symbol for the whole Canaanite people. He says, I'm I'm giving them more and more chances and more and more chances. But there is a time, if they don't stop, it's ended. And at that point in time, the iniquity of the Amorites was still being filled up. God was giving them more chances, more chances, and more chances. But it comes to an end. And when it came to an end, God sent his people in, and he conquered them. And he kicked them out of the land. So that's what happens. When their iniquity becomes full. You know, sin... The penalty for sin is not keeping your part of the covenant... And the penalty for not keeping the covenant is death. We think that liberty to sin is something that God gives us the right to do. But in in reality, liberty to sin means you have liberty for the most severe judgment in the world that's coming. That's the liberty you have when we keep sinning. We have liberty to receive severe judgment. And the more we sin, the more severe the judgment. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch which passed between these pieces. It's a theonomy. It's a picture of God. In New Testament, I mean in Old Testament terms, a symbol of God, a smoking torch or a smoking oven. 
a flaming torch, and you're going to get different interpretations on what it means. But it means God walking through and declaring an end of himself if he fails to keep his word. And on that day the Lord made a covenant, a solemn agreement with Abraham, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt, the Nile, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. They're going to come back. In my time, when I say so, they're going to come back. They're going to inhabit the land. So this land you see that you've got nothing to do with right now, you don't own a piece of it. I'm going to give it to your descendants. It's going to be like the stars in the sky, like the sands at the seashore. More than you can count. This is Abraham believed God. Now why in the world should it be so hard for us to believe a little thing when Abraham can believe this? But he's 75 years old and God says, I don't, and he says, I don't have a son. God says, you're going to. And 25 years later, he does. <laughs> and we can't believe him for more than a couple of days, a <laughs> couple, couple of weeks. And then we go, well, God, you said it. Why hasn't happened yet? So let's be faithful. Let's don't turn aside. Let's don't get angst or be engrossed or enveloped in angst and terror. And what is it Jesus says over and over again? Don't be afraid. Fear not. And that's what he says here. Let's pray. Lord, help us to understand and believe your word. Lord, we know that we're but dust. But we call on you to help us, Lord. To help us to be like you. We've been created in your image, Lord, and I pray that that image would grow and not diminish. And it would grow because we put our faith in you, our trust in you. We know your word cannot be altered. That it's set, Lord. And that you stand behind it. You've cut a covenant with your people. And you said, if you believe in my son... My son is the one that takes the curse. The curse has been put on my son on behalf of you. Lord, we're just so grateful. We have no words to express the gratitude and the, and the awe of who you are. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.